Sessions. I'm Jude Vase. And I'm Steph Midlock. Welcome to Athrobat, a podcast exploring the returning spirits of Tolkien's Legendarium. Well, Jude and I talked a little bit about this right before starting this recording, and at the time of this recording right now, I don't think we screwed up too bad last week. Or last episode, sorry. Well, there's one. <laughs> this is a monthly podcast. Yeah, so I don't think we have any corrections culls to sack right now. Uh, but there's always room to screw up in the future. That's right. Uh, so always feel like you guys can add us at Twitter if you hear something weird or have any other questions. Um, and we can always get to that next time. You never know. Someone may find something and we may have to add one in the next episode. That's true. Or, you know, scholarship changes with time and you never know what what the future will bring. <laughs> Speaking of scholarship. Nice transition. Uh, Jude and I. I know. Thanks. I just thought of it. Uh, Jude and I uh, and your your favorite Athrobeth hosts are heading to New York City. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> uh, we're going to be going to a symposium held on March 16th of this year at the Morgan Library and Museum in conjunction with their new exhibit that's opening on January 25th called Tolkien, Maker of Middle-Earth. Jude, do you want to tell everybody a little bit about the symposium? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Uh, The symposium is going to be headlined by a speech, uh, a reading by John Garth, who wrote um, Tolkien and the Great War, which is one of the one of the better biographies of Tolkien and certainly one of the sort of standard works in the biographical, uh, liter, uh, in the biographical sphere when it comes to Tolkien. Um, he's a great speaker. I've heard him speak before. Um, I've been lucky enough to read up some of his stuff and he's spoken in some of the classes I've taken at Mythgard and. Whoa, that's awesome. Yeah, he's great. Uh, I'm really, really excited to hear him speak. Um, the last time I heard him give a paper, it was on Tolkien's, a paper he's been working on about Tolkien's creation myth, um, the music of the Ainur. And wow. it was super cool. And it was sort of an in-development thing. And um, I know he's still workshopping it and sort of working on it. So I'm going to poke him a little bit. Hopefully he's doing a Ooh, Q&A. Are we going to make like... We love Garth T-shirts or anything, or like a big foam finger that says number one. That might be a bit, no, a bit much. But I, you know, (laughs) I'm I'm interested to see your concept art. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna work on that, and uh, luckily I've got a little bit of time. As I said, that is happening on March the 16th, which is a Saturday in New York City. So if anybody, any other Atherbeth fans in the area want to come, we could all go together. That'd be kind of neat. Could debrief over you know, beers or whatever afterwards, that'd be pretty cool. Um, there's also presentations by a number of other professors, um, you know, from the University of Vermont and from Central Connecticut State and uh, University of New Mexico. So it's going to be pr- pretty fun after- afternoon, I believe. Yeah, there's a yeah. great lineup of presenters and papers there. So I'm I'm very excited about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, one I'm looking forward to is called But the Beauty of Mithril Did Not Tarnish. Tolkien, Material Culture, and the Made Object. I'm very excited about that one. That's going to be very cool. I don't know if you guys know, but my real life day job is working in for museums, for an art museum. So I kind of like material culture and I'm, I'm excited to hear more about that. So join us if you feel like it. Add us at Twitter. Definitely. Um, uh, we would love to meet any of you that are great. in the area and we'll be there. I know at least one uh, Athrobeth fan uh, plans on being at the 
uh, at the symposium. So that would be great to uh, meet some of you. Yeah. So this week, we're going to be continuing our epic trek through the subject of souls and bodies. Oh. Uh, we have a sort of two-part episode this week. The first is going to be on the subject of Sanwe Latya, which is thought transmission, specifically via the paper Osanwe Kenta, which is an essay that Tolkien wrote. And then we're moving on to a more expansive subject, uh, that of resurrection, uh, more specifically rebirth and rehousing. Uh, so we'll dig into that. That's awesome. Cool. I'm excited. I, I don't know anything about that. So well, I'm buckled in. I'm well, ready. You're going to learn because making this outline nearly <laughs> killed me and required me to come back from the dead to talk about it. It really sounded like a threat. You are going to learn, Midlock. Yes. Buckle down. I feel good about that. All right. I'm ready. So we've got many paths through the halls of Mandos to tread. So let's get your resurrection shoes on and let's begin. So, uh, this subject, the, these uh, two subjects, uh, we're drawing on a couple of, a series of pieces that Tolkien worked on. So, before we dive into the actual material, uh, I want to talk about the works that we're going to be drawing from and get that all out of the way so I don't have to go back and talk about all the various sources uh, throughout the piece. So, we're going to kind of do well, that at the top. That's a great idea. Osan Kenta is an essay that Tolkien wrote that is an explicitly in-universe document, which is cool. Um, oh, because oh, he loves framing devices, He does right? love framing devices. That's correct. I learned that on Atherbeth He podcast. This was supposedly written by an elven lore master named Pengolod. Pen, yeah, Pengolod. Uh, it's, it's a Sindarin name. I always get tangled up with those. Yeah, come out of Sindarin Bridge. Yeah, that's right. Uh, based on theories and observations of the Eldar, elsewhere treated at length by Elvish lore masters. Oh, that really rolls off the tongue. Right. So basically, what this is is this is uh, Pengoloda. I'm butchering that. Pengoloda. I whatever. Uh, this is. I kind of like it. Pengoloda. Pengoloda. He's working from previous scholarship. And writing up a bunch of writing his thoughts on the subject of uh, thought transmission. It is a very classically Tolkien document in that there's two parts to it. One part was published in uh, one of the journals. May I ask you a question? And I don't want to derail Mm -hmm. you. When you say published in one of the journals, is that an in-world journal or are you talking about uh, out-of-world journal? Out of world. So may I ask you, so you said that this was a, an essay. Yeah. What, what kinds of journals, I don't know if you know offhand, what kinds of things was he publishing to? Oh, well, no, not to his journals. Okay, so um, Osan Kenta was pu- a long piece. Let me back up. There were two pieces, Osan Kenta and then the etymological notes to Osan Kenta. The sure. both of them were published in a journal called Vin, Vinyar Tangwar. Vinyar Tangwar oh, is a yes. 
journal published specifically to release Tolkien's notes and essays after that were unrelated to sort of the main literary volumes that basically it's all the stuff that didn't get into the history of middle earth but specifically related to the linguistic stuff but over time a lot not- of va- sorry go ahead oh but these were not posthumously published these were published during tolkien's lifetime uh n- no they were mostly posthumously published okay yeah. got sorry please continue um osal mccanta was published in 98 and 2000 uh, issues oh, wow. 39 and 41, respectively, for the Osama Kenta itself and then the etymological notes. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Was that Christopher Tolkien then preparing that? Uh, so the way it worked was uh, with Vinyar Tangwar was uh, there was this tremendous volume of papers that his father had created. And he didn't. He set up this pipeline, basically, of stuff that he didn't want to publish himself or that he didn't think would be of interest to the broader, like, that he didn't think would be worth putting into a book because the broader Tolkien community wouldn't be interested in it, but that would be of interest to the linguistic community. So he, he ended up with, there ended up being this board of, and I'm, I'm coming off the top of my head, I did not prepare... Um, the history of of vineyard tangwar here so oh sure please forgive me <laughs> my apologies uh, <laughs> linguistic people if i'm getting vineyard tangwar's history wrong here but there was there's basically a board of individuals um who curate this material and uh christopher tolkien sent it to them in roughly uh chronological order so starting with the oldest stuff and moving through time he sent them boxes of crap and they curated this material, as I'm sure you can imagine, being a museum curator person yourself. They treated it like that. They archived it and collected it and then published it, uh, the relevant portions, as they could. Uh, and that's what Vineyard Tangwar is. And there's a couple of other journals that have also received pieces of it. Um, they disseminated the material out to other journals as they saw fit. And we'll see other pieces in uh, that I'll be talking about today got uh, uh, were the source of some of these pieces. Wow, that's awesome. So that's where we get Osanwe Kenta mm-hmm. from. Yep. Cool. Uh, the second piece that we're going to be talking about uh, is Laws and Customs of the Eldar. Uh, also, this was also written in 1958, sorry, Osama Kanta was written around 1959, 1960. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laws and Customs of the Elder was written in 1958, 1959, and Laws is a much less clear what its textual perspective was. Um, there's hints it was written by a man, possibly Elfwine. Uh, oh. I'm not going to get into this framing device extensively in this episode, but the short version is that at one point in the development of the Silmarillion, Elfwine was conceived uh, as a 10th century Anglo-Saxon descendant of Erendil, who sailed to Valinor, learned all the lore of the elves, uh, i.e. the Silmarillion, and then sailed home, translated it into his language, where it moldered on a shelf and then somebody in our age discovered it, translated it into English, and that was the Silmarillion. 
Oh, that's so cool and so dorky. Yeah. I love it. Um, it's great. It's so compelling. You yeah. Know? I forget exactly how that framing device got, didn't end up being the final one. Um, I can't remember if Tolkien removed that or if Christopher Tolkien removed that, but uh, Elfwine didn't make it into the final version. But, um, but there's some evidence to suggest that uh, Laws and Customs was written by Elfwine. Um, Laws and Customs is a weird piece. I love it. Laws and Customs is the source of a lot of really interesting and valuable material, but it's also, there's some stuff in Laws and Customs and we'll talk about it. Yeah. I remember from a previous episode. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Squiggy. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll get there. Yeah. The next piece is the converse of Manway and Eru. This was written in 1959. And then there were some revisions and notes that he, Tolkien made on it in 1966 and later in 72. Um, this was written, this was all published uh, in a French volume called Le Fouille de la, de la Campagne. I'm butchering this, volume three. <laughs> it's French. I don't speak any French. I don't speak anything close to French. It's a French journal, uh, Tolkien journal. It included the Ooh. full version of Tolkien's manuscripts, Converse of Manway and Eru, Reincarnation, Reincarnation of Elves, and some notes on rebirth, Reincarnation by Restoration among Elves. These are the three things I have grouped under the heading um, Converse of Manway and Eru. But they are three separate oui, oui. pieces uh, written in 59, 59, 66, and 72. But of course, the French know all about that. Yeah. Um, Very smart. The French. For the converse, I have no idea what the textual perspective is. Um, if the book, the the sources themselves, the documents themselves, don't give any particular indication what their framing device was, and if the book gives you uh, gives any indication, I don't know because it's all in French. The uh, <laughs> um, uh, could a French person please add us on Twitter? And let us know at Etherbeth yeah. underscore cast. Yeah, if you have this if you have this book and you have read any of the commentary on these pieces in French, because apparently it's a great book. Um I bought it just for these pieces, because these three fragments are literally nowhere published nowhere else in Tolkien's scholarship except this book. So I bought this not cheap uh book um <laughs> just for these like just for these three essays, which were no regrets because uh, this this stuff is sort of my wheel my wheelhouse. So I, I needed to have them. But I really want it to be your wheelbarrow. I'm into yeah. that. I know I heard that starting to sneak Yeah, out. I, I corrected myself. That. Thanks it's for a, calling me out on it, Steph. It's so cute. I love it. It's my wheelbarrow, too. No, it's not. It's fine, though. Anyway. Uh, the last one is Glorfindel 1 and 2, which are these two essays little essay fragment things that appear in peoples of middle earth, which is the last volume of the history of middle earth. Um, volume 12, um, Ooh. in the fragment in the, uh, section last writings. And these are some of the last things that Tolkien ever wrote. Um, they're, I think they were written in like 1972, I think is when he, uh, is the dating on the Glorfindel pieces. Um, yeah, like 1972-ish. And basically, these ones are Tolkien writing some notes about 
Glorfindel, and we'll talk about what's in them. But um, these are him literally like working on some thoughts on on Glorfindel. So there's no there's no uh, internal framing device for those. But it's like, is it Glorfindel's thoughts? No, no it's, it's not Glorfindel writing it's it. It's not like Tolkien. this is what I remember. Yeah, it's Tolkien's. Uh, Tolkien working out some thoughts on how Glorfindel's resurrection worked. Right, because, yeah, he has a super long history. That's right. Mm, cool, yep. it'll be interesting to get into. Yep. I'm excited. Glorfindel's a hottie. Yep. What? So for the... We're leaving that in the podcast. Boop. Yep. <laughs> Counted. Glorfindel's hot. Okay, keep going. So for topics today, uh, to, to sort of recap, we're going to talk about the abilities of the Fea before and after the Maureen, specifically Sanmelatia, thought transmission, uh, and a few of the other abilities that that implies and that are related to that and then we're going to dive into elven resurrection okay counterpoint Mm -hmm. just before you start just in case somebody missed last month's episode episode six could you just give us a quick like elevator pitch of what the marring was just so we're all on the same page so real fast terminology recap uh fea is the elven or is any spirit that by nature wants to be bound to a body, which is also referred to as a Hroa. Uh, and the Marin is what Morgoth did to creation by messing with the music and then screwing with Arda, tearing it around, trying to remake it in his own image, sinking his power into it. So is what is him messing up the world? Yeah, specifically making it other than it should have been. So Arda Mard is how the elves refer to the fact that the world was other than it should have been. Yeah, and Arda is the word for the world. The world, yeah. right? Yes. Yes. Oh, good. Okay, good. Oh, that was such a good recap. I know. And also, Nailed I love it. listening to you pronounce Hrua. I can't do it. See, that sounds pretty. When I say it, it sounds like I'm coughing up something. Okay, nope. So let's You say it. I'm just the pretty one. Keep going. So we'll start with the uh, properties and abilities of the Fea. Um, so the Fea is a spirit. Properties and abilities of the spirit. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm with you. So the first thing uh, about the Fea, and this is going to be important later when we talk about resurrection as well, is that the Fea is totally unique. While it may have kinship with other Fea, and it may have similarities, and it may have others that it resembles... It is totally unique, and it descends from Eru. Are you saying that each of our Fea is unique? Yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. So we're all beautiful snowflakes. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, Thanks. And we'll get into why that's important when it comes to resurrection later on. Uh, but for this gotcha. purpose, uh, this is one thing that Converse, that the Converse lays out as being uh, important. Um. Another thing that's kind of interesting is that it contains a pattern of its body within it. Ooh. Um, oh, so it's predetermined. Um, Do you mean just like species? I'm not going to go so far as to say that. Okay. Okay. Um, Step back. What is What we do know is that it doesn't go so far as to say that the body, the pattern of the body that it will have is, is predetermined before it gets into the world. But the body, the the body that it has, after it's separated from, if a, if a if a elf, for example, dies, the body that it has after it dies, 
the pattern of that body down to its least detail is with is kept within the fea and can be perceived by another being which uh, is, what do you what do you mean if if like if another person is looking at just a soul they can see the body within uh, what we'll, is that, like a weird cloud we'll see it again this is again something that comes up later on in okay. when we talk about resurrection and rehousing uh this is just another property of this of the fea that i'm listing off here um cool so uh now we're getting into the sound stuff the natural state of the fea is what's called referred to as open and in this state uh, the fea perceives specifically the mind and I'm okay. So, uh, a quick caveat here. I'm not going to use all of the terminology, all of the Quenya terminology that is used in Osanwe Kenta. Oh, thank God. There's a lot of really interesting <laughs> Quenya terminology here, but we have a f- fuck ton of ground to cover tonight. And yes, and finite time. And finite time. <laughs> uh, so I'm not going to do it. There is some really interesting linguistic stuff going on in Osanwe Kenta, um, but um, I, I, we, we just can't. So there is a special word for open. There is a special word for minds that differentiates it from spirit. There is a special word for heart. And there's all kinds of interesting quenya going on here. We're not going to get into it. Anyway, the natural state is open. And in this state, um, minds, fea, whatever, uh, can perceive each other directly, um, though no more than the existence of another mind. So two, two minds can perceive each other that they are there and they can then reach out to each other. One mind can then basically knock on the other mind and try and transmit thought. <gasps> are you talking about mind reading? Uh, mind <laughs> sort of. sending, no. basically, yeah. thought transmission. Um, I'm pretty sure that's an, there's an L5R move for that. Anyway, sorry. Probably. Let's not get off topic. Um, um okay, so, so when, so two spirits can recognize that there's another spirit there and can talk to each other. Yeah, they can send thought from one to the other. Cool. Um, minds can also be closed. And this is really important. Oh, yeah. Minds are impregnable by nature. There's no law. So there's this thing that is referenced throughout the piece called Aksan. And I will mention this term. Aksan is like a law that Eru sets down saying you may not do that. There is no Aksan against forcing a mind because there's no need for one because it's impossible to do. Morgoth cannot crack your mind open and get into it it's impossible to do if because eru or god of, of that universe of tolkien's universe says no uh in the sense that he made it so that Fea cannot be forced okay if you close your mind to morgoth he can't get in that's just how minds work so oh man okay but that must be hard to do then because there were a lot of really excellent great cool kings and all kinds of people throughout the history of metal earth that definitely did not have their minds closed well so the, and that guy. yeah there's a there's a lengthy section of osama kenta that talks about this okay that talks about how morgoth got around this problem Ooh, and we'll talk he found a loophole yeah and the short version of this is that he doesn't need to, it was language basically um 
He got him on a technicality. Oh, you got to give him props for that. Yeah, basically he, he was a sneaky bastard. Yeah, he he found a way by using subtlety and trickery. He would lull them into a false sense of security so that their minds remained open so that he could then oh. read their minds and implant false fears and lull them and slowly corrupt them into th- into his way of thinking, things like that. Um, and some of them yes. came to his side because they were, you know, they had become marred through other things. He didn't need to do his thing on them, especially when it comes to men. They were marred by because of what they were, because of what he had done fundamentally to their to them. And he needed yeah. to only offer them. And that was another thing he, that it talked about was he could threaten their bodies. He could say, you're going to serve me or I'm going to murder your wife or torture your children yeah. or cut your arm off. And they would serve. Sure. So, yeah, we, we saw that with um, Turin Turumbar's father, right? Yeah. He got put up in that chair because he that stupid idiot was like, I'm going to cut your family if you don't. And then he got him anyway. Yeah, exactly. Because he's a deceiver and a jerk. And I hate him. Bingo. Yeah, I think there's an excellent line somewhere in the lord of the rings where someone's i can't remember who it is maybe it's gandalf someone says like i I feel like a servant of the enemy would like speak fairer but feel fouler or maybe aragorn said that i can't it's um but that's kind of what you're saying it's frodo oh good old frodo jeez okay great i think so yeah i think so too anyway um so question the question then becomes uh if all Fea have this ability why don't people run around telepathing everybody everywhere all the time right well, here's why. Um, in incarnates, the perception of other minds is dimmed by having a body twice over oh. because you have to go through your your flesh and then you have to go through another person's body. You're double blocked by having bodies in the way. Sure, you're body blocked. Absolutely. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Hi. It's further dimmed by language. Spoken language is more precise and the more you use it, the more habitual it becomes. And it weakens the faculty for uh, Sanwe Latia, the more you use language. Uh, wow, that stinks. But that actually, it kind of makes sense, right? When you lose one sense, another often strengthens to like make up for it, right? Yeah. So, but when you've got all your senses, they're all just kind of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the thought transmission becomes weakened by uh, this more precise sense. Because if you can only send vague like feelings or yeah. pictures, right? Versus an actual direct sentence. Yeah, you're going to go with the easier way. Exactly. Uh, this was especially true in men for whom the, fac- the, the, the thought transmission ability was always very weak because their bodies were much stronger than their spirits. Um, huh. However, there are ways to strengthen the thought transmission. Um, there were a number of factors that could be used to uh, strengthen it. The first was kinship. Uh, well, uh, sorry, affinity between the two. So kinship, love, friendship. Aw, uh, that's nice. That means, yeah, cool. Because, you know, we all know that um, <clears throat> partners or friends or whatever can have like kind of a secret language between us. Yeah, so yeah, you know exactly. somebody so well, you can kind of read their heart without words. Yeah, and they actually mentioned things like that in the piece, like that kind of stuff, the simpatico kind of a thing. See, Tolkien's a romantic. Anyone who says he's not is full of it. <laughs> Anyone, yeah, exactly. Um, the second is urgency, joy, grief, fear. In those times, the mind leaps towards these other people yeah. that you have this affinity towards. 
And uh, the last is one that's super weird to me, uh, and that's authority. Ooh. Authority, which lends, quote, force to the thought of one who has a duty towards another or of any ruler who has a right to issue commands or to seek the truth for the good of others. Huh. Hmm. uh, That's really fascinating, actually. Yeah. Because of all the time that he spent, you know, in World War One, I wonder if you can like disassociate yourself from your inner feelings. If you're like, I just got to follow orders. I don't have a choice. Right. I can put whatever my mind is telling me about what I've been asked to do. I I don't have a choice, so I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. I'm sure there's a longer episode about Tolkien's views on authority and i have i certainly have an episode about tolkien and kingship in me cool um but this is a weird one for me because he's already established that a mind cannot be forced but he now establishes that authority can be used to strengthen so it's kind of a it's not a contradiction but it's a weird so a king can reach out I, yeah. more strongly to his people, but only yeah, if for the truth them. of good, for the good of others. It's a yeah. It's a weird bit of like a double standard for the good guys, which I'm, I have no objection to. I'm just saying it's a, it's an interesting system he's got set up here. Yeah, it kind of works though, honestly, because some of those speeches we get before major battles, especially in the Lord of the Rings, are very compelling. I'm like, I'm ready to saddle up with Rohan too. Yeah. When Theoden is calling me to arms, you know, so it's not, I'm not being forced. I just really want to please that guy because he's awesome. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I'd like to talk more about that on a, on a future episode. Yeah. So after the marring, uh, there's a couple of major things that are different here. Uh, the first is that in Arda Unmarred, openness is the natural state of a mind that is not otherwise engaged. It doesn't specifically say that that changes in Arda Mard, but I think it's safe to say that there, I think it's a reasonable assumption to make that that's not always the case. I'll tell you why. The mind is not always open as its natural state. Gotcha. Um, At a very minimum, I think it's, I think you can also make the argument that men were more open before Arda Mard. Because their bodies were, the bodies of men are more powerful than their spirits. And they already were were weaker in that regard with this facility. In Arda Mard, their bodies were even more unpredictable. And they had less control of their bodies in Arda Mard. Sure. And I, I expect they had even, they were even more inclined to be closed. Because fear was an even more dominant emotion in the makeup of men after the marring. And fear That's is absolutely right, because you just said one of the properties was when when you're frightened, right? That's that closes off the mind immediately. Urgency of the sender, joy, grief, or fear. Well, that's that's for strengthening. But one of the chief ways that can close the mind is fear. Yeah, sure, that makes sense. And before the marring, they had nothing to be scared of. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Uh, the second thing is that uh, before the marring, there was no provision uh, in Arda Unmarred for death. And likely, likewise, there was no provision in dealing with unhoused spirits. So after the marring, they had to invent a whole system for what to do with uh, things that died. Well, that's just some poor planning right there. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so specifically, there was a whole system of summons that was put in place where when a, an elf died, 
or a man, uh, there was a summons that existed that called them to the halls of Mandos. And they were summoned there. Uh, they all felt this irresistible summon, not irresistible, this summons, and they could choose to resist it, but it was voluntary. They could not be forced. And that's an important point to make. What is the House of Mandos? The I... Halls of Mandos are literally just a, I mean, purgatory would probably be the best, the best parallel. Mm, uh, it's a place it's like where. A afterlife? No. It is. No. It is a place where all the thing, all of the elves that died, are hanging out, waiting. It's purgatory. All oh, the, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that sucks. I don't want to go there. No, that doesn't sound like it's, good. It is not described as being good or bad. Uh, it is where all these souls hang out, and the Valar decide what to do with them. So the souls were summoned back to that purgatory place, Mandos. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have to choose. They could refuse to go. They could refuse to go. In the days when Morgoth and Sauron were kicking around, those summons were almost in, almost always obeyed because the alternative was that Sauron or Morgoth would, would hunt them down. Ooh. Uh, but in latter days, good. when there was no threat to them out there, many ignored the summons and would choose to linger out in the world amongst the things that they loved the places where they had become attached and they would fade there and become lingering out in the world oh man okay so all right just off the top of your head question for you if you were a disembodied spirit and you had to go to one place to hang out forever until you faded away where would it be um probably the whatever the place was that i had the strongest emotional attachment to the the home or the the place where I had died, because that's what is. That's the point uh, of these lingerers is they grew attached to the the world too much. They refused to let go of the place of the of Arda, and that's why they refused the summons. So where would you, Jude, go then? I don't know. I probably wouldn't. The mall. What? Really? That's a boring answer. Sorry. <laughs> He's like, suck it. What about you? Cool. Uh Oh, I mean, uh, Six Flags. Right? <laughs> Come on. Right, it's a right, the niche answer. <laughs> Please. No, I would not go to Six Flags, but I can't think of anywhere better than the that. Top so the Top Gun ride at Six Flags specifically? Oh forever in the front that would be amazing i would see the world uh so that is the sanwe section i thought about trying to dig up some specific examples where it crops up but it's a hard thing to pin down um it's not like it's specifically ever mentioned by name or called out and the piece doesn't list because it's written from an internal perspective it's not like in this section, you know, in this part of Lord of the Rings, we see it happening here. We don't get that. Oh, can I ask your opinion on something? Then? Sure. When Gandalf fights the Balrog mm -hmm. and like passes out of time and space, quote unquote, yep. right? And kind of dies and then he comes back. Do you think his soul is going anywhere to one of these places you're talking about? Or because he's um, a Maiar or a lesser angel. Oh, see, I'm learning. There you go. He, maybe he maybe his soul didn't he he was void he didn't have to do oh these no he's things? He, so what do you think? he totally dies 
Um, well, no, he dies. But like, so where does his soul go? Uh, so when when Gandalf, I mean, maybe we don't know. Maybe there is no answer to that. Uh, no, we do know. Um, oh, kind of, well, to the best of my knowledge, and I haven't researched it, so caveat emptor yeah. here. But uh, Gandalf dies and is disembodied. He gives up that raiment that he is currently wearing. And he goes back to where he came from. Um, and oh, Eru gives him an upgrade and kicks him back down, back down onto, into uh, Arda. And he re, re reifies, puts on a new body. Uh, but that's why he's all kind of adulpated when he first gets back down into Middle Earth. He's now Gandalf the White. Because he's a wearing a new raiment and uh, he's kind of reconfigured himself on this second trip. He's got a new set of orders and he's operating on a sort of a he's operating on a sort of a different uh, frequency. So, like Neo, he knows kung fu now. Yeah, there you go. Cool. That's awesome. Well, so yeah, that's kind of interesting. Hmm. Then and and maybe that supports what you mentioned about how you know the pattern of the body is within the spirit because even though he gets new raiment, like everybody recognizes him uh, right away. They're like, "Oh my God, Gandalf, you're back! How'd you do that?" And he's like, "What? Who oh, is that? My name?" You know, slightly different. Um, as a Maiar, he can take on any form he wants. Oh, gotcha. He could have come back looking like a warthog if he wanted to. Um, <laughs> I would watch that. I, I would I would watch Peter Jackson remaking them again 20 years later with everybody as the Lion King characters. That would be good. Um, <laughs> no, the, the, the image of the body kept is a specifically elf thing. Okay. Um, it's an elf thing. Could be a man thing. Not clarified. But it's a, it, okay. it certainly is an elf thing. And we're about to get into that because we're going to talk about resurrection now. So we're going to start with the textual shenanigans again. There are two distinct phases of development for Tolkien's thought on how resurrection works in Middle-earth. There is the rebirth phase and then the rehousing phase. So let's clarify those terms. Ooh, for yeah, for rebirth, great. what Tolkien means is for an elf to come back, an elf will be... Re- literally reborn it will go to new parents it will be reborn it will depending on the era variously remember or not remember its past life to various degrees <gasps> it will grow up a what? second time with a second set of parents and then oh, it will man. attain adulthood and it will have had two childhoods and then it will go back out into the world that's going to mess up your family tree so much it's going to be such a mess can you imagine being like a 10 year old kid starting to like grow through puberty, or I guess that would be like a million year old elf going through puberty and being like, I've already done this once. I'm an old man in my mind. I'm so mad about this. Yeah. It's a weird system. Um, yeah. And then the second option was rehousing. And this was where Mm -hmm. the image of the body kept in the spirit comes in because what would happen was the Valar would examine the Fea in the halls of Mandos. And in that state, the Valar could see that image of the body, the pattern of the body that the Fea retained, 
and it would recompose a body completely for the Fea and rejoin them and scoot them out back into the world. Run along. Get back out there, you. And we'll get into both of these uh, because they're both super interesting. But let's go through the the development. Uh, Lord of the Rings was written in 49 to 55, somewhere in there. Well, through that time period. Mm. And contains an example of a resurrected elf. And who's that? Glorfindel. Glorfindel! Blah, 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 blah. Uh, according to a short essay found in People's Middle Earth called Glorfindel, versions one and two, specifically the second one, written in 1972, thereabouts, there's a really good quote. Uh, its use in Lord of the Rings is one of the cases of a somewhat random use of the names found in the older legends, now referred to as the Silmarillion, which escaped consideration, reconsideration in the final published form of the Lord of the Rings. Oh, wait. So he, he like he used the name and then was yeah. like, oh, shoot. Uh, with all I things. Have done that. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> No, yeah, no, that's it. Uh, with all things organized, it becomes problematic since the former Glorfindel died a pretty dramatic death. Oh, no. Really? Yeah. Poor guy. Old Glorfindel got beamed by a Balrog. Um, oh, man. Not the same one. Yeah. A uh, different one. Um, all right. Those but basically, uh, so while Glorfindel's naming may have been one cause for him to go back in 1959 and start thinking about this. The one that he explicitly names in 59 and basically throughout the rest of the time is uh, the Namna Finwe Mirielo, specific, which translates to the Statute of Finwe and Muriel, which is, and I will give you the full text of that statute, when the spirit of a spouse, husband or wife, shall for any cause pass into the keeping of Mandos, then the living shall be permitted lawfully to take another spouse if the former union be dissolved forever. Well, right, because your husband or wife could come back as a four-year-old, right? Yeah. You never know. So <laughs> so they're like, cool, marriage done, bye. This statute arose because Muriel gave up life after the birth of our favorite incendiary gas bag, Fanor. <laughs> um, He's a... He can suck an egg. Yeah. That guy. Uh, Muriel was thoroughly drained by this, by giving birth to him. This is one of the, this is a piece of garbage. Uh, uh, not garbage. I don't know. I don't like this part of Laws and Customs. So the statue of Finway and Muriel is all from Laws and Customs. We're in Laws and Customs land now. The weirdness begins. Oh no, buckle up. Um, and there is a portion of Laws and Customs which says that uh, the not a portion, it mentions it several times that the process of childbirth, the child draws from the fea of the parents, specifically the mother, but medially from the father, and it draws sustenance from the fea of the mother, and that's why Feanor kills his mother basically by being born. Because he's such he a... He suckled too much at the teat of her spirit. Yeah. The spirit teat. Basically, yeah. She, he's Sorry. He's such a, like, burning essence. He's such a powerful fea that, like, he drains her. So that when she's when he's born, she just, like, decides to give up the ghost. The little vampire sucks her dry. And she just lays down in, the, in a garden and dies. She just walks out of her body and 
gives up the ghost. But do you think she did that knowing that she would be reborn? No, there was no provision for rebirth at the time. She was the first elf that had died in Valinor ever, and there was no no rebirth at the time. She just, like, peaced out. Well, that's a raw deal. That sucks so much. Oh, Feanor, you're such a dick. Yeah. So this was, as I said, the first death in Valinor, and it was a big deal. Uh, I know everyone's worried now. Wait, wait, we can die? Oh, that's well, the elves had died before, but none of them had ever died in Valinor. And it became a further problem when Finway wanted to marry again because he wanted more kids. And he was the only elf in the only adult elf in Valinor without a wife. And the thing that is noteworthy about elves is they have a very specific idea. Um, this comes up a lot in the Silmarillion stuff and in laws and customs is elves have a very specific idea of their role in society uh, because they were literally told by God via the, the Valar, this is your purpose. This is like how you're, this is how you were designed by God. They seem very uncomfortable when they're not doing that. Um, Finway is like, very put out by the fact that he's the one elf that doesn't have a wife and he has one child when everybody else is having multiple children. Like the fact that he's not fulfilling that role that his, he was designed for seems to bother him. Okay. So this provokes a conversation with the Valar, like what do we do here? Yeah. And through the course of debating this, like should we let him take another wife? They realize that, what if she comes back to her body? Is that a thing that we could ever let her do? And it raises the idea with them of resurrection. Well, we have all these elf souls. Could we put them in bodies? Could we let them come back from the dead? And Manway goes to Eru and starts asking questions about this. And this is how elven resurrection happens because Finway wanted to get remarried. Who's Manway again? Sorry. Manway is the kind of king of the Valar. Oh, King of the Valor. Okay, yeah. great. Thank you. Uh, all because Finway wanted more kids, basically. Uh, that's how Elven Resurrection happens. Wow. Very hmm. weird, but like the, it's a pretty straight line connection between those things. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, everyone needs a job. If you, it's your job to procreate, then get busy. Yeah. So they sit down and they try and figure out how, to, how they're going to do this. And the first solution that Tolkien comes up with is rebirth. And Laws and Customs has a whole mess of, of details about how this works. <laughs> the first draft of the converse, uh, the converse between Eru and Manway and Eru, is in accord with this. And that was written in 1959. So it seems like around 1959, this was, this was Tolkien's thought on the subject. But it gets wonky. Uh, and clearly he runs into problems with it. Because by 1966... 1972 he's changed his mind Hmm. and by then he's switched to the rehousing solution which is the they create a brand new body and pop the sphea into this body that is the same as the old body and this is super cool and i want to i want to poke at this for a second the convert the essay in the the essay in this one is super, super, super cool. It's the reincarnation of elves and the notes on rebirth have some super interesting stuff in them wherein 
Let me find the quote right yeah. here. Where is it? Here it is. I remember reading this at the time and flipping my lid because here's the here's the quote. Some then asked whether the Fea rehoused was the same person as before the death of the body. It was agreed that it was the same person for these reasons. What means the word same? The lore master said it means two things in all respects equivalent, but also identical in history. And I flipped my lid because this is fucking tensing the Coppola. This is hmm. a this this is Tolkien doing something that was it's a philosophical problem um, called identity over time or intrinsic change for enduring things. Um, this is stuff that I studied when I was doing my philosophy major. Yeah, that's cool. It's coming back. <laughs> uh, and David Lewis is a philosopher who wrote a paper called Tensing the Coppola. And he was basically a, a solution for how to identify objects over time. How do you ascertain whether a thing is the same at, at time A, B, and C. Like, how do you know something is the same? And the way he solved that was tensing the coppola, tensing the, tensing the identities at time points. And okay. that's what Tolkien's doing here, is he's saying it is identical. It means two things, in all respects equivalent, but also identical in history. So he's saying it, is, it, it shares that history. So it's the same object, uh-huh. but the same over time. So it has that... that it, preserves that timeline anyway yeah because if it didn't have the same history then it wouldn't be the same object anymore right because it would have had different experiences and end up in a different place yeah and he goes into more detail really deeply into this subject about like well if you use if the body calls for an amount of iron and you don't use the same iron but you use an equivalent iron is it the same like he goes deep into it it's not the same well, is it if no. <laughs> you use the if you use different iron atoms, is it the same body? No, because they make up different things and those things are used differently. And so they're shaped and molded and their own history is different. I guess it's it's oh, geez, it's we are not doing philosophy. Well, Get so he, he goes very deep into this <laughs> and it's it's super cool. I, I was I remember being so surprised that he had gone very deeply into this. <laughs> But yeah, so he he invests quite a bit of thought into this subject and he lands on rehousing as being the right way to do it. Huh. So. So rehousing meaning building, they're coming back in the same body? They are built a new body, which is equivalent, not the same body, but equivalent and identical. So they'll look the same, but they're not going to be the same. Wait, but they are the same. It is a perfect copy of the body that they were in when they died. It is equivalent. It is equivalent and identical, but not the actual body they died in. Gotcha. Because that's dead. Mm-hmm. So you can't have it back. It's gross. Yeah. I gotcha. But they have all their memories and everything. So it's basically just like a reboot. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to walk cool. through this, both of these methods here. We're going to get into Ooh. some details because there's some wacky business to go into here. In either case, before reincarnation could happen, they would be in the halls of Mandos and not every Faya could be reincarnated. They would have to hang out and they'd have to, to basically be, I don't know what's the right way to put this. They would have to kind of go through therapy and they would have to be rehabilitated uh, and then judged whether they were sufficiently uh, ready to be back out in the world. Sure. 
in the in in the later essays there's a passing reference that children were the preferred ones to be rehoused first because they haven't like had as many bad experiences it's easier for them to readjust yeah i think so maybe um and i think also because it just seemed fair i don't know but it's interesting that that's mentioned another interesting thing that is mentioned one thing that i think is kind of interesting is uh in the rebirth sections it's talked about how rebirth was viewed as a kind of therapy the idea that coming back and getting that second childhood was viewed as a way to redress the violence of the death Aww. like that second childhood it's kind of interesting yeah gosh that would be so trump do you think that do they remember their own death oh yeah that would be so traumatizing i get that's why they need all the time yeah sitting in purgatory thinking about it they mention in um it's mentioned in laws and customs few return to life more than once oh so one time and done because some like but apparently going some through do. it again and again would, would drive you nuts yeah apparently though so, uh, i mean it says few but that implies that some do some were killed more than once and returned to life more than once man that's crazy yep so in the rebirth conception the way it worked is an elf would be reborn amongst its own kin but not to its original parents okay um it would not return its original retain its original memory only recovering that over time. Oh. So an early argument for why that was preferred was that it was plain that the provision of a bodily house for a fea and the union of fea with hrondo, which was an early word for hroa, was committed by Eru to the children to be achieved in the act of begetting. So basically okay. what he's saying... can you say that yeah. one more time? Sorry. It is plain that the provision of a bodily house for a fea and the union of a fea with a hrondo was committed by Arrow to the children to be achieved in the act of begetting. So basically what he's saying here is, in Arda, the process of a fea being slapped into a body, into a chroa, mm-hmm. was intended to be done via begetting. And that was the method that was to be preferred. So if you were going to do it, if you were going to put a fea back in a body, that was how you should do it. Begetting? What does that mean? Spaghetti, spaghetti. Banging. Oh, nice. Hey. <laughs> well, good. Uh, there is, I'm going to, there's a quote. I want to, <laughs> there's a quote. Oh. Okay, there's a quote. I have a section in my outline called Laws and Customs and is Weird. Um, <laughs> you mean you have a sex? A section. Uh-huh. Which, on the subject of begetting. <laughs> As for the begetting and bearing of children, a year passes between the begetting and the birth of an elf child, so that the what? days it's are a year gestation period. Yeah, Jeez. wait for it. No, that's not the weird part. So that the days of both the days of both are the same or nearly so, and it is the day of begetting that is remembered year by year. <sighs> that's the birthday. Is no, the you don't remember the birthday. <laughs> the you remember day. the hey. you remember the bang day. How, why would <laughs> I have so many questions? Why would that because be the a, thing you were? What what compelled <laughs> Tolkien to sit down and say, "Yeah, elves remember the day their parents banged." That's what they, no. they don't have birthdays. They have the they have a day they sit down and remember when their parents, you know, hit it. He must have been really good. That's all I'm gonna say. Right? Hey, it is monumental. I just can't. Even and do, do elves keep like a like a calendar? Oh, of course they do. Where they're like seventeenth, did it? 
Like, how do they know There's which? How do they know which day poor... results in a kid? Oh well, I mean, well, maybe they didn't do it that much. I don't uh, know. Maybe there's got to be. Some or maybe they're magic. Blur. Maybe they automatically know when it works. Hello, I'm Glorithin Goflin, and my job is to note when everybody does it, and I don't like my job. I I wish I didn't uh, know these things, but I do. I just I'm the chronicler of bang. <laughs> chronicler bang you know there's somebody on world of warcraft with that <laughs> with that as their custom title if there's not i'm gonna go start playing that game and make that as my title because that's amazing okay i'm sorry for this oh. digression all of you who were here for the serious subject and not for the the bit about banging i just <laughs> i saw that quote and i was just like oh why why wow I feel like we all know Tolkien a little better now, um, right? You know, just amongst friends. Anyway. Gross. Okay, moving on. <laughs> um, so, so they're begotten all day of the week. Yeah. I mentioned that one of the things I actually liked about this, about Rebirth, was that it was called, the double childhood is called out as a method of redressing and treating the violence that had caused the death. It's a kind of therapy uh, or recuperation. Oh. Um so what's what are the problems with this? Why did Tolkien reject this? The body created by the second parents would not be the same body as the original. Is one big one, uh, and as such, the Feya would never be able to fully accept the new body. Uh, elves are designed with one Feya and one body that is the one that was intended to be for that. So if you get a second body, which is created by the second set of parents, it would not be the right body. Unless Eru like went in and tinkered to make sure that the second body came around the right way, but that's not indicated. The second one is that Tolkien felt it would be weirdly cheap of Eru to force some elf parents to get a secondhand Feya for their kid. Oh, I see. Basically, yeah. he, he thought it would be unkind to the second to the to force elf parents to get a knockoff instead of having a. Uh, a real elf kid because they would raise this kid and it would turn out to be a fact, you know, not an actual kid. It would be some old elf. It would be like your neighbor who you didn't like. <laughs> You'd be like, oh no, we got Merv. Not freaking Merv. I hate that guy. Yeah. Who likes Merv? And also it's called upcycling. So oh, come on. I'm sorry. Upcycled. Yeah. Some, We're doing the glow up. Some okay? upcycled elf up. soul. Yeah. Upcycling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What if you don't I like that, that? those other elves, you know? Yeah. What if like they were a jerk to you IRL, you know, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's your kid and you're like, boy, I don't I can't tell you why I don't like you, but you're going to be a dick later. Yeah. Uh, the last reason he uh, problem he mentions is that the the child produced would either be born with full memories, which weird reminds me of Dune with the preborn. These kids that are born from birth with full memories, which seems creepy as fuck. Oh my god, I know! <laughs> or they have these veiled memories, and eventually they start to, like, pop through. Uh, and in either way, he describes the child as maladjusted, and I think that's pretty accurate. You have a, ch a kid that doesn't get a... isn't normal, so that seems... The kid is maladjusted? Yeah, that seems... that seems... he doesn't produce a... A totally adjusted kid because they remember their own death. Of course, they're going to be maladjusted. That's weird. Yeah. Well, at some point, they're going to start to remember their old life, and that produces a weird, a maladjusted kid. Oh, um, that makes me feel sad. Yeah, it's not good. And it would also yeah. produce a false relation to the second parents and would be a grief yeah. to the parents. Totally. So, yeah. 
It, That's, yeah, geez. Those are a lot of good reasons yeah, to not use that. They're all real good reasons. So then rehousing. So why, why do we go to rehousing? How does that work? We mentioned that the FAA contains a complete, the complete knowledge of every detail and particular of the body contained within it. When it's unhoused, that is when it's floating free, uh, this knowledge could be perceived by the Valar. It, right, because it doesn't have the body blocking it anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, since the Valar created the world, they have perfect command of all the stuff of Arda. So they could just and build a new body. <laughs> that was where you, you were creating it? Yep. That was what I was doing. By a poop noise? Great. Yep. <clears throat> when Manway went to Eru and raised this problem with him, he was very sh- gun shy about the whole situation. He was like, we don't like messing with the elves. We do not feel we have a lot of authority over them because we had no part of the music where you created them. Eru goes, I give you the authority to do this. You now have the authority to handle resurrection. Whoa. Go, go get your groove on. <laughs> oh, God. Manway's like, wait, wait, wait. Whoa, whoa. No, 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 no. That's not what I was asking for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, he doesn't want any part of this. So he is given the authority to rejoin the Hurla and Fea. So that's what they do. They just jam the fae in there and bob's <laughs> your uncle squish it right down in just, there yeah <laughs> bam like you're working at an amazon warehouse just a tiny tiny package yep okay got it yep there you go just jam that jam that sucker in there just add some of that bubble wrap bags or whatever they are mm-hmm. recyclable bags cool so the val oh gosh but could the Valar be trusted with that? I mean, of course yeah. they could, but yep. I don't know. This sounds like kind of a big deal just to be handing off to people. It is what it is. <sighs> All right. So authority was given. Yeah. So God's like, sure, you you guys do it. Don't worry. I, I don't really have time. So yep. you guys do it. Just do it. It's fine. And that was where he landed with it is he felt like that was the right way to go with it. And uh, that was when he died. That was the solution that he was content with. Okay. Well, I'm, hey, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. So for my money, what are my two, my two cents on this? I vastly prefer the rehousing solution. I find the rebirth solution squicky on many, many levels. Mostly I agree that it seems gross to give a set of parents a secondhand fea where they, there's a little more detail I didn't go into, which is namely that you have a body, which is built of the parent, the second parents. And a fea, which is not not new, and you have a weird melding that isn't good. In a, do we have any examples of that where that's not worked out? I mean, you might that might be a question that we could follow up at a different time because that might take some research. But it would be interesting to see. What do you mean? If that went wrong, like it was there sort of a a re born no elf that went bad or anything because of it no we don't get a lot of examples um okay no glorfindel is really one of the few reborn that we see uh in action we're told about a lot of reborn but we don't see them actually out doing their thing okay yeah uh yeah i think the rehousing solution is a lot less gross sure um the fact that he gets all like philosophical about like how the bodies the, re- the rebuilt bodies work is really, really fascinating to me. I think that's so interesting. I was not expecting that from Tolkien. It seems it's interesting that he wasted it, not wasted, that he spent his time on it. He doesn't usually 
get into that kind of weeds. So it was fun to find. <laughs> yeah. And it must feel weird for you, like having studied philosophy for so long to have these two things collide. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, it was exciting. Yeah. This is the resurrection thing is such a, an interesting subject to watch his thought evolve. He, he changes his mind a lot, but it was really interesting to watch it. It was a, a great little time capsule to watch his thought grow across these like four or five pieces. That's really cool. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's nice that we have years on all these things so we could kind of see through time. I mean, what would be really fascinating is for, you know, maybe a timeline of Tolkien's life to see what was happening with him. You know, was any I mean, could could any of this have been, you know, taken from his real life and his experiences? Who knows? Externally I mean, influenced. Know. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I don't know. Yeah, it's really cool, though. I really like it. And so that to me, this knowledge uh, makes certain things less sad. To me, knowing this makes the death of some of these elf bros a little bit less sad, mm -hmm. maybe because they're maybe they're going to come back. I mean, but that actually just even as that left my mouth, I realized what your point of. Well, they really only get like one chance to come back and it's kind of traumatic, frankly. Yeah. Maybe. And not all of yeah, them so will. It's still sad. Not all of them will meet the criteria. And for the most part, once they, even when they do come back into a body, they're pretty much stuck in Valinor. Um, Glorfindel gets a special, kind of a special one off exception to come back to Middle Earth, but they don't get that for the most part. Yeah. So it's still, it's still really sad. Yeah. The idea of it being with no that doesn't have really an expiration date getting killed by like a stupid orc or you mm -hmm. know in some dumb battle makes me sad you know yeah it really is um and that's part of why they start the rehousing rebirth reincarnation system is because that's it is so contrary to what the elves are supposed to be to have them floating around unhoused is is very uh very much outside of their original design sure are there and again, this could be a question that we talk about in another episode, but are if if spirits are hanging out for too long, can they get like pissy? Oh yeah. And start making trouble. Did we talk about that maybe in the Halloween episode when we talked about ghosts? We talked know. about it a little bit, and it comes up in laws and customs as well. There's a section. Let me see. I think I have a quote for it. Uh yeah. Rebirth is not the only fate of the houseless fair. The shadow upon Arda caused not only misfortune and injury to the body. It could corrupt the mind, and among those, and those among the Eldar who were darkened in spirit did unnatural deeds and were capable of hatred and malice. Not all who died suffered innocently. Moreover, some fair in grief and weariness gave up hope, and turning away from life relinquished their bodies, even though these might have been healed or were indeed unhurt. Few among these latter desired to be reborn, not at least until they had been long in waiting. Some never returned. Of the others, the wrongdoers, many were held long in waiting, and some were not permitted to take up their lives again. For there were, for all the fair of the dead, a time of waiting, blah, 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 blah. Wow. It goes on a little bit, and then, uh, for it would seem that in these after days, more and more the elves, be they of the elderly in origin or... Be they of some other kinds who linger in Middle-earth now refuse the summons of Mandos and wander houseless in the world, unwilling to leave and unable to inhabit it, haunting trees or springs or hidden places that they once knew. 
Not all of these are, are kindly or unstained by the shadow. Indeed, the refusal of the summons is in itself a sign of taint. It is therefore a foolish and perilous thing, besides being a wrong deed forbidden justly by the appointed rulers of Arda, if the living seek to commune with the unbodied, through the mm -hmm. houseless, though the houseless may desire it, especially the most unworthy among them. For the unbodied wandering in the world are those who at the least have refused the door of life and remain in regret and self-pity. Oh, yeah. We've all had days like that, right? Right. <laughs> um, wow. That's really interesting. This is a weird section for me, actually, because it, uh, there's a passing reference to the fact that some of these spirits are enslaved by the Dark Lord. And yet it says that yeah. you can't force a spirit to do anything it doesn't want to do. So I'm not entirely sure how that works. But... Uh, yeah. The, yeah, to, to answer your question, yes, totally. Um, some of these spirits are very dangerous. They will try and take a body. They will try and mess with you. Um, some of them are yeah. quite dangerous and quite corrupted. Hmm. Yeah. Just like me. No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> wow. That's fascinating. Yeah, I thought so. Oh, man, this was a really cool cool thing to talk about i i was like you know when you i'm gonna level with you when you were like we're gonna talk about blah blah blah, blah. i was like oh no this is gonna sound well there's no horses in this so i'm gonna take a snooze but no it's been really interesting this is awesome horses um, don't go to mandos god shoot poop yes just leave horses alone <laughs> leave me horses alone you didn't even talk about glorfindel's horse which is okay that's fine you know what? One of these days we're going to do an episode all about horses and I'm going to... Maybe that can be one of the episodes we do after uh, this run of grim-ass episodes. <laughs> we'll do an episode all about Rohan and we can just have like a big old Rohan fun fest. Oh, don't give me what I want because I will become insatiable. But yes, that would be amazing. I love Rohan. That's my favorite. Hey, House of Ale. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. This was awesome. Thank you. I, yeah, I had a good time with it. Me too. I just checked the, the recording time and this actually was perfect longer than I, like this went faster than I thought it did, which is a good sign. So, so yeah, so that's, that's souls and resurrection. Next episode, we're going to finish off this series by talking about our namesake piece. We're going to talk about the Atherbeth. I am... Not going to lie, I'm a little terrified of writing that outline. Um, <laughs> the out, It's probably going to be less grim than this one because it's it's less pieces to cover. It's one one single thing to write about. But man, the Atherbeth is, is a very important piece to me. It's my single favorite thing that Tolkien ever wrote. And it's an incredibly important piece to me. So uh, I, it's no pressure or anything. No pressure, you know, keep it light. Can I ask you a question? Sure. If any of our fantastic listeners or, you know, your co-host mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe wanted to take a look at it, is there anywhere where we can access it online or is it something that you have to purchase? Uh, it is in Morgoth's Ring, but, and I'm not saying one way or the other, whether you should do this, but you could Google Atherbeth Finrod Aendreth and see what happens. Okay. We're just going to put that out there. Yep. I can't wait. I'm very excited to finally know more about what the name of our podcast is. I'm, <laughs> I'm very... It's been a year of me not knowing anything about it. So this is great. I'm very excited. Um, yeah, I, I have a 
yeah, I have a lot to say about this piece and I'm very, very attached to uh, this piece. So. Oh, nice. Well, I can't wait. Well, I guess I'll, I'll see you in the next episode then. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you. The road may go ever on and on, but this episode is over. Join us next episode in the last of the series when we talk about the Atherbeth. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes as it helps increase our visibility. You can find us on the web at www.podcast.atherbeth.com. You can find the show on Twitter at Atherbeth underscore cast. Jude can be found at Aramidic Jude, and I can be found at the North Four. Title music is Lord of the Devil Rings by Pony Music, courtesy of Pond5. Thanks for listening.